Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Now the story, just parenthetically here, is why was it that this taskmaster was beating up on this Jew with a particular viciousness? The reason was that the wife of this Jew, her name was Shlomit Bat Divri, was her name. And this taskmaster had set his eyes upon her. And so what had happened was when her husband went out to work, so he came into the house. She let him in thinking it was her husband. And then he realized, the taskmaster, the Egyptian, that the Jew was aware of what had happened. And therefore he beat him. And therefore, and therefore he yeah, was particularly cruel to him. Okay. <coughs> you can explain that psychologically as you will, but uh, I think we all instinctively understand that that's how he expressed his many emotions, including guilt, uh, by beating up the very Jew that he had that he had uh, betrayed. So it's this Jew that Moses observes again uh, striking, uh, this Egyptian striking the Jew, and he kills him. The next day, Moses goes out again to see, to be with his brethren, to, to seek out the welfare of his brethren. And he sees two Jews quarreling. As it happens, these two Jews are troublemakers. This is the first incident we learn of the trouble they caused. But down the road, after the exodus, uh, it's these two Jews that are involved directly in the rebellion against Moses, the leadership, the challenge, the leadership of Moses, the authenticity of Moses. At any rate, so back to the story here in Egypt. He sees two Jews quarreling. One raises a hand against the other and he says, Wicked one, why do you strike your fellow? And the response he gets is, Well, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then we read, That Moshe becomes fearful. This is the salient part of the, of the story for us. He becomes fearful and he declares, indeed, the matter is known. The next verse reads that Pharaoh hears of this, that Moses had killed one of his officers, and he sought to kill Moses, to execute him in retribution, and Moses flees. We all know that he goes to the land of Midian and then spends many years there. He marries the daughter of Jethro, of Yisrael, Tzipor, etc. Zeroing back on the, in on the story here, the fear of Moses. What was he afraid about? So Rashi has this to say. Rashi offers two explanations. A simple, literal one. And then a second explanation, a midrashic, which means a deeper or non-literal explanation. The first one, Rashi says, is, well, the obvious, as the simple understanding of the story would have it. Why was he afraid? Because when he hears one saying, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? They're talking about it in public. He was afraid that news of it would get to Pharaoh, which in fact it did. 
And indeed, Pharaoh's reaction was as expected. That was his fear. Rashi offers, however, another explanation. And that is this. His fear was a worry. He was afraid because he saw wicked ones amongst the Jews, tail bearers. And he said to himself, having seen that, perhaps they're not worthy of redemption. And that was his fear, that the Jews were not worthy of redemption. So the question here is as follows. We've had occasion to discuss this in the past. Rashi wrote a commentary on the Torah, right? There are endless, virtually endless commentaries on the Torah. What is unique about Rashi's commentary? Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak, or Yitzchaki, hence Rashi, who wrote this some 800 years ago. What's unique to Rashi's commentary is it is the simplest and most straightforward and literal commentary of all. In other words, the agenda that Rashi has in writing the commentary, as he makes clear himself, is all I have come to do, says Rashi, on more than one occasion, is explain the simple meaning of the verse. You follow? That's the entire agenda. If the verse at a simple level has no problem, then there's no commentary of Rashi. Not with... It's okay. Notwithstanding the fact that in the Talmud and in the Midrash, guys, I just try and focus in on what's going to lose, the whole thing will unravel. In the Talmud and in the Midrash, which is where Rashi gets all of his explanations from, there is endless commentary and very deep commentary. But that's not his mandate, to bring those commentaries to the reader's attention. Other commentators do that, or one can look up the sources directly themselves. What's Rashi's mandate? One mandate, one mandate alone. To clarify what? The simple meaning. Deep philosophical questions, or background information, what have you, that is the purview, the mandate of other commentaries, not Rashi. So therefore, we have a simple and obvious question. What's our question? Having told you that, and having just heard that Rashi offers two explanations, one actually is not an explanation. One commentary is one word, kipshute. What are we dealing with here again? The fear. So Rashi's first explanation is, as the literal meaning of the verse would have it. Then he goes on to give this non-literal by that but that we mean it's not in the text itself. He brings that from our sages, from the Medrash, about Moses' fear of the Jews being unworthy of redemption because they're wicked tale bearers or gossipers amongst them. So what's our question on Rashi? Why is he doing good? Why is he doing what? Right. Why a second explanation? What's the, the first explanation is very satisfying to the, understand the simple story. You follow? Simple question. He was afraid because he sees that he, from the response that word is, has gotten out and likely to go further from the way they responded to him in this mocking tone. 
So you'll kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So he was afraid. And his fear was borne out. Pharaoh did hear and... So there's no need for Rashi to dip into the Medrash, it would seem, and offer this whole new explanation. Not afraid of, of his life, or it's a, a fear of the worthiness of the Jewish people. He was afraid they weren't worthy of redemption. Answer, what compels Rashi? Is again, we have to find an answer that compels this second explanation from the text itself. You follow? So what is it about the story that compels Rashi to give a second explanation? The answer is that the reader at the simple level is somewhat perplexed. Why would the Torah record this detail? That he was afraid. His fear didn't lead to anything. He was afraid. If that was deleted, the story is complete. Moses kills the Egyptian. It's reported by Dosan and Aviram. Pharaoh hears about it. I mean, the story, the narrative reads without any missing links. This link that Moses is afraid, whether he was or he wasn't, why does scripture record it? Why what? Why would we have to record that he was afraid? Why is that whole fact recorded? If that fear led to, and therefore he said or did something, okay, nothing. It didn't lead to anything. Scripture records the narrative as it happens. The reader can assume he was afraid or not assume. It's irrelevant, but it doesn't change the story. It doesn't change the story. It's a fact in the story that seems doesn't contribute anything. Delete it, the story reads perfectly. He killed the Egyptian, it was reported, and he had to flee. That's the bottom line. So that's the question that bothers Rashi, and it's a question that the five-year-old, the proverbial five-year-old child for whom Rashi wrote the commentary. This is the proverbial Talmudic five-year-old child who is logical, consistent, and understands what you tell him. He's literal. So this is an explanation for the child. Not just for the child, but for... Everybody else as well. But it starts with our study of scripture at its most literal level. The child raises his hand in class. Why does it, we would ask this question. Why does the Torah say that Moses, Moses was afraid when that didn't lead to anything, of any, anything practical? So in order to answer that, Rashi has to give a second explanation. Well, we're forced to tell you, even at the literal level, that there was another fear going on here. And that was a fear of the unworthiness of the Jewish people. And that's something the Torah wants to record that we should know that Moses had this concern. Right? That's the simple question and answer on Rashi. Are we clear? What compelled him to give this midrashic, non-literal explanation is the simple question, why record this fact? Answer, it's more than just simply the fear of his own life, but a fear about the spiritual state of the Jewish people. And that is significant enough for Torah to record and have the reader be aware of. At the literal level. Because Rashi is the literal expositor. True, he had to dip into the Medrash. But the verse, the narrative itself, demanded that insight. Clear? That's, yes. But if you were to stop there, Moses wouldn't have gone any place. And the story would have 
No, he only went because he heard that Pharaoh was about to kill him. We're not asking why that was recorded. We're asking why that little detail and Moses was afraid. Why that is there. If that wasn't there, nothing would change. Pharaoh heard about it, wants to kill Moses, and he runs to, to, uh, to Midian. It's all there. It's all there without those words. Right. But that would be there regardless. Our question is why write these words he was afraid, and now we have the answer. He's afraid of the Jews being on board of redemption. Okay, good. So that is clear. Now we're going to probe a little bit deeper, and again, the subject here is the question of trust. Trust and faith, and we're going to show a linkage between these two explanations of Rashi. The literal explanation, that he was simply afraid that word would get out, and he was afraid of his life. And the deeper explanation, that he was afraid that the Jews were not worthy of redemption. They're unrelated, it seems, as we probe deeper we'll see that they are related and one sheds light on the other. In order to understand that, friends, I'm going to preface the following quote from our sages in the Medrash, and it goes like this. The sage Rabbi Pinchas said in the name of Rabbi Ruven. There were two people who received an assurance from God, a promise from God, and nonetheless feared. The first was the choice, or the greatest, if you like, of the forefathers, F-O-R-E. Who was the choice or greatest of the three founding fathers of our people? Anybody? Actually, Yaakov. Yaakov is singled out as being the greatest in many areas, but starting with the fact that he was the only one whom all his children were relatively righteous. All his children were relatively righteous, were righteous. That's right, his bed was complete in the words of our sages. So Yaakov is called the Bachur. Bachur means choice one of the forefathers. Where do we see that? God promises him, I will be with you. Right? That is in that uh, prophetic dream, or after the dream of the ladder and the ascending and descending angels. God promises, I will be with you and guard you and watch over you. And then what do we read? That he's afraid in his encounter with Asaph. Scripture tells us he was afraid. So he's the first of the two um, biblical figures who received an assurance but were feared nonetheless. And the second is Moses. At the end of the 40 years when Moses battles, Og, who was the king of Bashan, so before he goes out to battle we read, God says, do not fear him. Says Rabbi Pinchas, in the name of Rabbi Reuven, you only say to someone, do not fear, if one in fact does indeed. In the words of Rabbi Pinchas and Rabbi Reuven, one doesn't say, don't be afraid, 
of, of someone else unless the one one is addressing is indeed fearful. So here were the two people and he also, I'm sorry, I missed this detail. Moses also uh, received an, an assurance. God said to him, that I will be with you. This week's Parsha, we read, God said, I'll be with you. And yet, when it came to the war with Og, he feared, and God said, don't fear. Now the question here is, is the Medrash praising them or critical of them? Of whom? Of Yaakov and Moshe. There are two opinions in the commentaries on the Medrash, on this Talmudic or Midrashic teaching, as to what the intent of our sages is here. The first view is they're appraising them that even though they received an assurance, nonetheless, they were humble and they nonetheless feared they were not worthy of God's protection for perhaps they had sinned in the interim and now their sin has made them unworthy of the original assurance and promise. So it's actually a praise of their profound humility. That's one view. The second view says, on the contrary, the Medrash means to be critical of both Yaakov and Moshe. They were afraid, but one ought not to be. Certainly one to whom God has given an assurance of of protection. A promise, I'm I'm sorry. We should use the word promise, that's the term. Haftacha is a promise. And in maftiach, a guarantee. It's actually to guarantee or to promise. So these are the two opinions within the Medrash as to what the intent of the Medrash is. Now our question is this. We want to, you need to understand the second view of the Medrash that, is, that, that explains that our sages indeed are critical of Moses and Yaakov. Critical? Surely it's profound humility. It's profound humility that Yaakov and Moshe, notwithstanding God's promise, now are afraid that they're not deserving because they're no longer the fitting receptacle for his blessing because they sinned and have tarnished or blemished themselves. Surely that's a virtue and not something to be criticized. So we're going to explain this view. Why, indeed, according to one opinion, they are to be criticized. Why their, their trust, or their lack of trust, notwithstanding the fact that it's rooted in their own failure, is nonetheless uh, wanting. So we're going to explore the whole notion of trust and what it means. So the question is, here's, what trust, here's the definition of trust first. The definition of trust, and I'm quoting here from the famous work, Chayvus Halavavus, uh, Duties of the Heart. It's a classic written by Ramosha Chaim Lutzato, a great uh, ethicist and Kabbalist. So he writes in, in one of his works dealing with trust as follows. Trust is not faith and should not be confused with faith. 
Faith means God can. I believe in God, and I believe that God can do whatever God desires, even if it's uh, impossible, naturally. God is not bound by the laws of nature, and God, of course, is the master of creation, creation, and God can do as God wants. That's faith. doesn't mean, however, that he's going to do what I want. Trust, on the other hand, means that he trusts in God, that God not only can save him, but will. And the definition of trust is such that the person's... Here's the, here's the quote here from this book, Duties of the Heart. The essence of trust is a complete tranquility that one's heart relies entirely on the one in whom one has placed one's trust, God, and that it's going, all will be well. So the question is, but what's the justification for this trust? That all will be well. God can, but perhaps I don't deserve it. And as we asked earlier, it's a virtue to be humble and think I'm not worthy of trust. Questions clear? Now you might want to say, well, the definition of trust means this. Trust doesn't mean, we use the Hebrew term, betochen doesn't mean that I trust that it's going to be good, God's going to save me. From whatever issue, health, livelihood, whatever. Perhaps not. Perhaps I don't deserve it. Or perhaps some more complex reasons like I'm experiencing something in this lifetime to make up for previous lifetimes. So the salvation may not come. Nonetheless, one's heart is at peace and experiences complete tranquility and no anguish at all, notwithstanding the problem that one, that one is facing because... One trusts that whatever God does is for the good. Therein lies trust. Not whatever you do is good necessarily in the way that I perceive the good, that I will be saved from my predicament. But it is ultimately and objectively good because I may need this as a cleansing. On the contrary, you do me a favor, dear God, by my suffering in this world, cleansing my own failures, shortcomings in this lifetime or a previous lifetime, so that I be spared the cleansing after death, after 120 years. Perhaps that is the nature of the trust, that it will be good. Not saved, necessarily, but whatever happens, if God saves me, well, that's wonderful. If He doesn't, then I endure the, the loss, whatever it may be, then that's also for the good. Maybe that's what trust means, the Rebbe suggests. But you'll be happy to hear, my dear friends, that Rebbe rejects that explanation. As we probe further, and there's further quotations about the nature of trust, it is more than, I trust all you do is for the good. But it is expected when facing a... Uh, a predicament, whatever, in whatever it might be in life, that one trusts in fact that it will be good. How so? Maybe I'm not deserving. And moreover, does that mean that there's never justice? Anybody can trust? And then 
and ought to trust, and there's the expectation that the end be a happy ending. This is deserved, and the person needs it for their cleansing. And where, and this seems to undermine the whole notion of justice, reward, and punishment. There is both. So how can one trust under all circumstances that it's going to be perceptively and experientially? I'm going to experience the good, or maybe justice demands that I don't. And God is just. Yes, He's merciful. True. Which means He might. There may be clemency. But what's the guarantee? And there are proofs here from various sources that the true and deepest definition of trust is indeed that it will be good. I'll be saved. How is this justified? How is this trust justified? Question's clear. Again, so it's more than whatever you do is for the good. No, it's going to be good. Salvation will come. Who says? Maybe you're not supposed to. You know, there's a famous joke that God always answers. It isn't always the answer that you want. This is the response to, but he didn't hear my prayers. He did, and he answered you. But the answer was no, yeah. Or yes, if it was something no that you had asked for. Surely that's, that's a, not just realistic, but it's, it's true. It's not always going to be the answer that I want. For my good. In the big picture, which I'm not aware of right now. And yet the Rebbe insists, happily for us, that no, that there is this concept of trust that means that it is going to be good, I shall be saved, the healing will come, the livelihood will come, uh, the roadblock that I face will open up. Rather than the fatalistic acceptance of this is thine will and I accept it with equanimity. Is that the word? Equanimity, close. Last time I said that, I was a few letters off the word. Only one this time. No, it's not that. It's actually a trust that it's going to be good all the way through. Where does this come from? So the Rebbe suggests a a rather novel uh, insight into the whole nature of trust. Um, Actually sourced and rooted in... in a famous work called the Ikrim, which deals with the principles of faith. And it goes like this. Debbie invokes here a story which he, he sees to quote himself endlessly, virtually, or very often. And he would say as follows, my father-in-law, he would say, talking about the previous Rebbe, would tell the story of the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek was the third Rebbe of Chabad, Rebbe Menachem Mendel. So the previous Rebbe would, uh, would quote that story and Rebbe would quote it too. Here's the story. Someone came to the Tzemach Tzedek with a terrible problem. It was a, someone was critically ill. And the Tzemach Tzedek answered the following cryptic words, which I should tell you become almost a mantra or a slogan in Chabad. It's easy to say the words, much more difficult to live by them. The words are in Yiddish and it goes like this. Tracht gut, wet sein gut. Now, there's one word you all picked up, of course, in that Yiddish, no matter what language you speak, and indeed that's the word good. So I'll translate the rest of it for you. Think good, yes, 
it will be good. In Hebrew, Tachshov Tov Tov. Now, what does this mean? Think good and it'll be good. This cryptic little enormous teaching is saying this. Trust is not merely a consequence of faith. If you believe in God, then you trust that whatever happens is good, and it's a kind of a passive acceptance of whatever God sends my way. No, suggests the Rebbe. Trust is a new, novel obligation. It's an active obligation, which I'll define in a moment. It's not merely the consequence of, if I believe, therefore I'm trusting. No. Trust is an active contribution that the Jew needs to contribute in his relationship with God. And that means, the Jew says this, it may well be that I don't deserve And whatever other calculations uh, there may be in the heavenly court that this happened to me precipitated by my own behavior in this world, I'm sorry, in this lifetime or a previous lifetime. However, I know God, of course you can change, and I thoroughly and utterly rely on you. I suspend, this is an active thing, I suspend all fear and apprehension, even the fear of apprehension of my undeservingness. And I cast my lot with you. When a Jew does that, he can change. He can change the verdict up there. He can change it. Yes, and it's and it's the guarantee. If we sincerely place our trust, and I'll speak for a little bit, and it's a difficult. I must admit, I'm struggling myself with this, but let's finish the whole teaching and see where we're at, what we've arrived at. It's, it's, the Rebbe is saying that one can change <clears throat> the verdict, deserving or otherwise. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through the active casting off of all reliance on all things doesn't mean one doesn't go through the natural course if there is a natural course available. But the reliance on it is exclu- doesn't exist. That's a channel. The reliance is exclusively on God. If one trusts in God in this trusting manner, then God responds in kind and rewrites. Now, when I first learned this, I, I thought, so what, what does this say? Again, but the question persists, what if I don't what if I sinned? I don't deserve this. I need this to happen to cleanse me of my dreadful sins. So does this mean tshuva? Yes, in a sense it's kind of tshuva. But the difference between this trust and tshuva, which is classic repentance, which also is a means by which I can now become deserving if I wasn't before, I repent, I clean. So now it's a new a new person, so it's a new a new prescription, a new verdict, a new, uh, a new, pardon, a new slate. Is this not teshuvah? The answer is no. In a way, it's higher than teshuvah. Teshuvah is, repentance is, I sinned, I regret what I did, and I don't do it again, 
and I resolve not to and don't repeat it. And that can affect a change in the way God deals with me. This is more than, 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 than that. This is where a Jew self-transcends altogether. It's deeper than repenting over a particular sin or failure. It's I reach this, 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 this encounter in life, this problem, and it propels me to confront the deepest truth of life, and that is that God's the only reality. God is in charge. All is Him, and I cast off all worry, and you can, because you want to. It's a kind of repentance, this obvious this reliance on God, but it's more than repentance, and it doesn't deal with me and my failing. It's com- complete surrender to Him. If one surrenders oneself completely to God, then notwithstanding any divine calculation, God can, in kind, surrender the whole heavenly court's verdict based on my behavior, cause and effect punishment, surrender that, bypass it all, and make it good. Let's, you don't have to change your ways. Which would mean, as a matter of course, I'm changing, without even wanting to change. Good, it's important to say that. If this, you've hit the nail, if this trust is sincere, it's like, it's transforming. But not in the classic, I'm going to be different, it's just transforming. Naturally and easily. It's a kind of essential repentance. So we're saying this, God responds in kind, if I go beyond my calculations that I deserve it and then he goes beyond the calculations and responds in kind. So that's, that's the, the meaning of trust. And it, it's not easy to come by. The lower level of trust is a lot easier. If you believe in God, whatever happens is for the good, then that's it. You're passive about it. That's easier. It's easier, and even that requires a great deal of faith and trust to accept without all that, comes, all that happens to me without... Um, Remonstrating without, without uh, questioning, without anger, resentment. That's a very, very deep and wonderful level. But this is higher still. This is higher still. This is, and this is the paradox. It's a deeper level of trust, and it affects a change. And it's actually good. <laughs> and I'm saved. It's also a deeper level of responsibility. It's a deep level of responsibility, Yes. You want to elaborate? You, yeah, because if you submit to the idea that God will, you know, make happen whatever is divine, and you surrender, and you say whatever He does is good. No, no, we're saying more that. No, second I level is. That, but I'm saying at that level, even the second, the lower level. The first level, lower level. Um, ultimately, God decides. You don't decide what's good for you, and then. That's right. That's right. That's right. You're in charge. You're in charge, and that's a scary thing. That's the paradox. The paradox of the second level is that we have the ability, here's the paradox, to quote-unquote manipulate or affect God, but the paradox is you can only do that by completely transcending the ego, completely transcending self. It's all you. It has to be sincere, and only God is the one that's the recipient of this kind of trust. You can't pay lip service to this trust. It's got to be sincere. A complete surrender of self. I'm everything. I deserve, don't deserve. It's you, and you can do it. 
Because ultimately, we might add, you want, dear God, that it be good for everyone here on earth forever. You want the messianic era. This is kind of what we're asking for. Salvation in a, in a, in a mini kind of sense. In fact, at the end, con- connects this to the ultimate salvation. With this trust in God, we can elicit not just the small salvations, but, but, but the big one. So you're right, it's a great responsibility. God is saying, affect me, would you please? I want you to. I've got this whole you know, court system that's based on reward and punishment and stuff, and angels and set into place. I want to bypass all that, but you've got to elicit that from me. By yourselves bypassing your own self, your own ego, your own past, your, everything. You can do it, God, because you want to do it. I'm completely relying on you. With tr- sincerely, sleeps at night, at peace. Notwithstanding the pressures at the bank or the doctor, he sleeps at night at peace. It's an extraordinary level where we actually affect change. Paradoxically, we affect the change it becomes good by surrendering the self. The low level is kind of easier. Surrender whatever God does good. You're in charge and that's the end of the story. I accept it all. It's easier. But who said it's easy to be a Jew? Truth is that's kind of Christian. You know, or, or Buddhist. Just accept everything. All comes from God and accept. But as we all know, Judaism is all about us being active partners with God. And God's greatness being such that he is affected by us, by choice. God's affected by us, not just the passive recipients of his benevolence or his punishment. You have to be positive. <laughs> Being Jewish or living Jewishly is all about proactive changing the world. What do you mean change the world? It's God's world, leave it as it is. But that's what he wants. He wants us to change the world because... The changed world that we are going to bring about is what he really wants. He could do it himself, but he wants us to be partners. And he wants us to have the audacity to go beyond what's even possible or just. So Jews don't know of impossible. Or that's justice. That's fairness. It's coming to you. We don't know of these things. You're infinite and beyond that and you can change the world. And you want to and you want it good. Make it good. And I fully trust that you will. That's life transforming. That's, can't, obviously you can't use this as an ex- exploit this and use it as an excuse for my own continuing failures. If truly trusting God means I'm surrendering that you are the only and enduring reality, then that's going to manifest in every detail of my life. It's all going to be about you, you, you. Of course I'm going to do what you want from now on. You don't have to repent. It's just going to be. If I'm surrendering that you are the only reality, you are higher than, not your court, not your angels, not your justice, you. You are the ultimate reality. If I'm surrendering to that, then that's going to manifest in every detail of my life. So it's a transforming level. And now we understand, having said all of this, we understand the teaching of the Tzemachsedek, think good, it'll be good. That's what he's saying. Be proactive. And surrender to Him. God wants good. He wants health. He wants, he wants these things. That's part of the great plan. 
So surrender to the great ultimate plan. Even if along the way there's hitches. You wipe them all out by your surrender. And hence we understand why the Medrash is critical. According to one opinion in the Medrash. The Medrash is critical of, of Jacob and, and, and Moses. Yeah, they were justified logically by being afraid. I don't, don't deserve it. I sinned. The people sinned. Maybe they're not deserving of redemption anymore. But the Medrash is critical. Never mind that. Not critical. See, Moses and, or rather Jacob and Moses, by quote-unquote failing here, serve as the lesson for us. So it's something we learn from. But at the end of the day, according to one view, we're learning what faith, what trust is not. Trust is not, I trust whatever you do is for the good. Trust is it's going to be good. And so the message is actually critical of the two. So what this means for us is obvious. I mean, it's an extraordinary level to aspire to, but the fact that we're learning about it means it's possible. And certainly when it comes, Deborah says at the end of this talk, when it comes to matters of Yiddishkeit, it comes to matters of Yiddishkeit, of observance, where it appears that there are obstacles, I can't do this. I can't do it. The accountant says I can't close on Shabbos. And I can't do this at home because of this. And I'm already it's too late in the game. And I'm this old. And my kids and my wife and friends are where I live. And, and a thousand reasons why I, I can't do the right thing. Here, trust applies here as well. You, just, you can. You, you trust. All the things, all those barriers you thought, you'll see. They're going to transform. Yeah, the spouse, the kids. The, all the perceived obstacles that I, I, I'd like to, but I can't do it. You trust that you can, and go and do it, and you'll see that it'll happen. So that's in the area of our own Yiddishkeit, growth in Judaism, morality. And, and to some degree, why do I say some degree? I mean, I would say this when it comes to get health issues, whatever it is. It's impossible, it's not impossible, it's thing. You trust. You have tried for years, it didn't go. No, 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 no. King David says, cast upon God your worries, your, invest in him your hope. But maybe I don't deserve it, maybe I'm destined, maybe it's written somewhere that, so could be, so what? So what? So what? He wrote it, he can rewrite it. So by having this active, positive, and joyous trust, we actually become instruments, if necessary, for rewriting the script and for the salvation to come in whatever is needed. And as I mentioned earlier, as a people, what's required of us is to trust in Hashem now that redemption, the Mashiach, can come now. Yeah, but look what's up. Never mind. So all things can turn around. It's his world that can turn nothing around in a second. So why doesn't he? If he can. Because he wants us to elicit it from him. By trusting in him, despite any objections we may have, then he changes despite any objections heaven or nature or history may have. Shia can come down. This second, you've got to trust.